participation and for you stepping in to help me with, with all of this. So really, thank you. I, I'm very much appreciative of that. Um, I'm very glad to be back at NUS again, second time in a week, which is great for me, and also to engage with this audience in person as well as online. Hello, everybody online. Um, I understand we have uh, quite a few people there too, and it's really uh, quite enjoyable to be uh, in the midst of audiences again, to be able to see people in person and to engage with them in person. You know, doing things online is great. It gives you access to audiences that you wouldn't otherwise have, but there's really nothing that uh, is quite the same as engaging with people in person. Um, so I'm, I'm very glad for that opportunity. And of course, being in Singapore, a country that I've been coming to now, for 15 years. Um, it's always wonderful to be back for the first time after COVID. And uh, I, I keep on wanting to come back and wanting to stay for more time each time that I'm here. And uh, I've had a very, uh, a very nice trip, um, been warmly welcomed, uh, and I'm very touched by that. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry that it has to end, but at some point I suppose these things do have to end. Um, and it just means that I have to come back again very, very soon. I hope. Um, there's something that's very obviously uh, poignant with regards to Singapore and the subject of today. Um, today's it's not really a book launch. Uh, I know that that was the impression that we gave, but really it was an excuse for me to talk about different themes that I thought were very interesting with regards to uh, Singapore, um, or rather things that I hope you will find interesting so that we can engage about it. I don't intend to speak for very long. Um, but I wanted to bring up a few themes that I thought were interesting for this audience. Okay, so Sheikh Siraj Hendricks, um, God rest his soul, um, he was part of the Cape Malay, you know, community um, in that the, the vast majority of the Muslim minority in the Western, uh, the Western part of South Africa, they generally find their roots in the, huh, the, the Malays of place. Malay not meaning Malaysia, huh? you know, Malaysia, Nusantara, more generally speaking, uh, people like uh, Sheikh Yusuf, Makassar, and others, Tonguru, huh? um, these are all very significant figures, and they're really what starts the creation of a community in South Africa of Muslims. And uh, during, you know, the early period of that history, which of course happens under colonialism, um, they're really cut off from the rest of the Islamic world um, and everywhere else, you know, I mean, it's a, the slavery period, isn't it? Um, and then in between the slavery period and the apartheid period is not very long at all. And uh, it's a very interesting development. And, you know, you see some of those developments in how they engage even in religious practice where, you know, they'll have celebrations for the the birth of the prophet um, and their tunes will date back to that period under slavery, which are very interesting and also impacts from other parts of Africa as well. Uh, you have um, a very interesting historical reality where a lot of the slaves that went to South Africa, other slaves went to Latin America or South America, more generally speaking, but you don't see uh, an, an extant Muslim community in South America from that period. They essentially became, you know, they, they died out, as it were. And people wonder uh, why, since they came from, you know, both similar backgrounds, why this was the case. 
And uh, historians tell me it was because the slaves that came to South Africa, they were scholars and they were Sufi sheikhs and they passed on their religious tradition through these practices. And as a result of passing those on, they managed to maintain their sense of religious identity and religious tradi tradition in ways that other places simply didn't have the opportunity to do. Now, um, obviously that connection between Southeast Asia and South Africa, it, it pretty much you know, stays uh, suspended you know, for a long period of time. Um, and I'll get to where it stops uh, pretty soon, but you know, something that happens um, post-slavery, pre-apartheid, is uh, a man called Muhammad Saleh Hendricks uh, leaving Cape Town and going up to study Islam and religious sciences in Mecca, which at the time was still under the Ottomans. Okay, and he starts a, a new tradition. And what I mean by that is that you have him studying with the uh, the family of what are called the, is the Maliki family, okay, which are originally from Morocco but settled in Mecca generations before. And then he goes back. He stays in, in Mecca for uh, about four years, I think it was, or four years. And then he comes back. And you then see him found this particular institution um, for the teaching of the religious sciences and as well. And then he has four sons that then go back to Mecca and they study of the Maliki scholar that he studied with. One of them dies in Mecca, three of them come back. They continue that tradition in Cape Town. And then two of their nephews go back to Mecca and they study with the grandson of the man that Muhammad Saleh studied with in Mecca. So it's really three generations of inter- uh, interrelationships between the Hendricks family and the Maliki family. And that remains very, very strong to this day. And now there's a fourth generation that is continuing that tradition, although not in Mecca. Um, so it's a very uh, interesting historical reality. Now, the Muslim minority in South Africa, I found fascinating. You know, I first did a book on Muslim minorities back in 2008. Um, which was on Muslim minorities of Europe. Um, and they obviously have all their own challenges and they're different. And, you know, it's difficult to talk of a Muslim European community when there are so many different nation states, of course. And, you know, it's a very disparate set of communities. Um, one thing that I found fascinating about South Africa was that it was so incredibly integral to the wider society. Part of this has to do with apartheid because you had all of these Muslim figures involved in the anti-apartheid struggle. So when it finally succeeds, they're also brought in to the mainstream in that way, which is also very interesting because then you don't have these questions around, you know, identity or integration or all this sort of stuff. You know, they're, they're just part and parcel of the surrounding community. And at the same time, deeply, deeply, deeply connected to their religious traditions um, uh, which are expressed in, in song and, uh, and of course religious practice and commitments uh, to uh, various parts of, of the Islamic heritage. Um, but it's very indigenous in that regard. And that was also something that I found really interesting. That was a theme that you know, I, uh, I wanted to explore with all of you here today, uh, because of course there are always these questions about, okay, how, how can Islam in the contemporary age look like? Um, you know, what are these answers to pluralism or to 
living in multi multiracial or multi-religious societies and you know at least in cape town it nobody even seemed to really think about it they just lived it and it all seemed very very much you know intact there were other issues about race but that had to do with the apartheid and that had to do with the remnants of or the repercussions of years and years of apartheid um, in terms of the rebalancing of uh, uh, of wealth and things like that and you know you had that discussion with the ANC the African National Congress but it wasn't it wasn't a religious issue you know it wasn't a religious issue and I found that very interesting and uh, I'm, I'm sure there are lessons uh, or you know insights that people might give from a Singaporean context as well um, so that's that's all I have to say about all of this right now and you'll see that Purposely, I didn't want to speak for too long, but we want to engage in all of you. And that's really an excuse. Really, the, the event was an excuse that I get to engage uh, with this particular audience and that I get to listen to uh, people who are very insightful, including most definitely my co-panelists. And I thank both of them for agreeing to be here this evening and to share their thoughts with us. So thank you. So I think now we will uh, have uh, Dr. Susanna. Would you like to speak now? Sure. Or would you like Fazla to do it? Uh, I think I will talk a bit more specifically yeah. to um, the Muslim community in, uh, in Singapore. Okay. Uh, but I, I think talk more generally uh, to Southeast Asia. Uh, really, I mean, of course, I'm a Singaporean Muslim, but my uh, my work off and on has really been uh, about um, really So, in in Indonesia, uh, the question of uh, indigenization uh, has come up. Uh, I think in the last uh, maybe in the last twenty years, when there's been a question around the threats to an indigenous sort of understanding of how Islam is practiced, right? Uh, and that's that's around the big debate of uh, what many of us think about uh, um, when we hear about Arabization. So it's still a big debate now in Indonesia about the extent of Arabization. Uh, to what extent that's really threatening the indigenous, um, I suppose, under, you know, the indi indigenous sort of practices of Islam. Uh, whereas uh, if you compare it to um, the earlier approaches to Islam, uh, the view is that uh, sort of this very, because it's, it's a majority community, uh, the indigenous sort of uh, mixing of Islamic under you know uh, practice and understanding together with localized tradition is kind of very much part of the Indonesian landscape, right? Um, and that's something that when we discuss Indonesia, it's often um, brought up as uh, uh, I suppose the 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 pride, um, the sort of answer to moderation in the region, uh, tolerance and so on and so forth. Um, my own view is actually, obviously, that's a simplification because uh, the idea around indigenization uh, is a lot more complex than indigenization being uh, integral or able to adapt very much to localized, uh, localized society and therefore not threaten uh, and destabilize uh, both within the country but also within the region. Um, my own view is that that's actually a simplification in our understanding of what indigenization means for Indonesia. 
uh, and so therefore it's it's when we look deeper it uh, it, it does not it's not a linear trajectory uh, in which indigenization means uh, an, ab an ability to integrate and therefore moderate because um, the reality is that we would look very carefully so there are other in which it can go either way but the debate around urbanization is quite interesting in the emergency movements uh, in which the argument goes uh, has been sort of the the arrival of a certain perspective of uh, Arab whatever the understanding of Islam and Arab culture uh, into Indonesia is further destabilizing it, and that's where you get the discussions around radicalization, fundamentalism. and uh, and to me that's also a simplification, obviously, because um, I think we can easily question what Arabization means. Uh, and at any point when the, the ideas flow, uh, there's always uh, uh, an action-reaction. Uh, and in the process, almost, inevitably, there's an evolution. Uh, and even within areas where, uh, at least in my experience, where we are dealing with much more uh, an Arab perspective, or however we may want to describe that, and a much more fundamentalist orientation within Indonesia, um, at the local, at, at, when you go in, it's far more complex in how uh, it's never again linear. So it's never simply uh, the, the ideas arise, people embrace, and therefore you try to spread it, and then it goes in one direction. But in fact, it leads to um, action and reaction. Uh, so I found uh, subsequently when I was looking at more uh, sort of Islamic uh, Islamist kind of thinking within Indonesia and how it, it arrives into the local communities, uh, that in fact it does lead to a period in which there's further reaction. Uh, and then even in those kind of thinking, it gets to an indigenization. So you see that some of these movements are further evolving uh, such that their take uh, or their perspective on the press, uh, on the practice uh, changes. And in, in some ways, however we want to define it, gets further indigenized. But it's, but it's an evolution in the localized practice. Um, and, and of course, there are many, many yeah. other forces that, that, that impact that. So I think both the, 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 the whole argument around there being an indi indigenous understanding of what Islam is like in Indonesia, for example, Islam Nusantara, uh, versus uh, a much more Arabized version uh, is way too simplistic because I think the Arabized version leads to articulation. Right? Um, I guess I can come to to further examples if we want to go there. Um, but I just I guess fundamentally I wanted to highlight that it's never a linear direction, uh, and that uh, the the process is actually quite complicated, uh, complicated, complicated, uh, and maybe we can have uh, a, a discussion. With, with uh, everybody here. So I'll pass it over to Faslo to talk more specifically about minorities. Thank you. Thank you. Faslo. Thank you, Michelle. Dr. Isham, Dr. Suzaina. As you can see, these are extreme academics. <laughs> As for myself, I'm a layman on the ground. I think what Dr. Isham has shared in terms of where the Cape Malays as a minority in, in South African context, and you hear from Dr. Suzaina, looking at how 
in Indonesia, although it's a majority Muslim, but how some of the influence of Arabization, in fact, recently very another ulama celebrated 100 years. And we have Muhammadiyah there, and now we have this trend of Arabization and the context where the Muslims are majority in Indonesia. But let me take back from Dr. Isham's book on, on the minorities. And being involved here in, in Singapore, uh, I just have three points, which we can very open for discussion. The first one is that I think for some of you may be aware that I was actually living in Qatar 2008-2015 with a family working there. And interestingly, you know, when we were there, uh, our Singapore community, we have a cardical of Singapore and Qatari flag. Because sometimes we go on convoy, we just want to ensure that we don't get lost. So interestingly, uh, when some of the Qataris or Arabs sit in my car, and then they say, Fazlu, Singapore flag, we have five stars? I say, yeah, Akadun Islam. I said, no way, you're not an Islamic state. You are just minority Muslims. I says, yeah, I mean, normally Muslim countries, one crescent moon and one star, we have five stars. But what do the five stars stand for? Peace, equality, justice, progress, democracy. I said, and these Islamic values. And then we have some people who say, you know, we have traveled to Middle East, we find Muslim, but we don't find Islam. But we travel to Japan, we don't find Muslim, but we find Islam. So what does this state, and this is also open for discussion, in terms of even for us Muslims, you know, in, as Singaporean Muslims in, in Singapore, how do we feel vis-a-vis -vis even the recent incident of our 18-year-old Irfan, who want to create an Islamic state? So because there are some claims and some narrative even for some of Singaporeans to say, oh, we must have a Muslim leadership, we must have you know, Islamic Sharia law, and that was happening now in Indonesia, and a bit more we hear in Malaysia. Uh, so does it mean we are not a better of Muslims as minorities under a non-Muslim government? So there's something for us to, to discuss. And then sometimes we wonder, you want an Islamic state, but how about the state of Islam in ourselves? where we can be a good Muslim wherever we are. Uh, interesting, last Saturday, we had a closed-door uh, dialogue with the Madrasa students. Uh, arising also because of the arrest. And it's good to hear from the Madrasa students. And in fact, I, I asked that question. You know, how do you feel? Are you as good Muslims in Singapore as minority as compared to some of them who think that we should be a majority Muslim countries? And then I would... I was heartened that the response was, yes, we feel that we can as good Muslims in Singapore. Because the mujahada, the, 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 the strife, the struggle that we have to put in will be more as what will be in the West. Because even when we were in Qatar, you know, I think you know that you know, call for prayer, you can easily pray. But in Singapore, we have to find a corner. <laughs> we have to find... Uh, a place, even Dr. Suzanne, where you were in the US, we had to pray by the staircase, the central library. <laughs> but, so, but that becomes our makeshift prayer place. We don't have to have a musallah that we have to call for a musallah that we can pray as a Muslim. But because the land of Allah is everywhere, it's up to us to adhere to the injunction. That's my first point. The second point is that, uh, as what Michelle mentioned, uh, during those days, I was in the government state board, and then now when Muiz was embarking on the walk-off, so I left to join DTZ as an international British firm as the portfolio advisor 
foremost. And we did some of the innovation. We did Islamic uh, bonds, the Sukkot, to finance Bankulan, how we could develop Bankulan. Uh, we bought 11 Bishop. And some of the innovation that the value of Wakaf at that time was in 2000, was 250 million, and today is close to a billion. And then I was invited to present an Islamic finance conference in Dubai, 2002. That actually brought me the first time to Dubai, 2002. And my title of the presentation was Wakaf Rejuvenation, the Singapore's Experience. So after I shared all this, and after my presentation, I have some of the Arabs from Islamic banks and the property development firms come up to me and say, Fazlo, you're from Singapore, you do all this, but you're minority Muslims. You have done all this. I says, yes, but because of circumstances and the context of Singapore, because we are going through urbanization, we own Muslim land, but we have to develop it. I mean, example, uh, for if some of you may be aware that the Willock Place in Orchard, it was formerly an Angolia mosque. Those days when I was in Arai, we always go there. And because it was acquired for development. So likewise, we as a Muslim community, we have to respond. And I will say after that, notwithstanding myself as a Martin Muslim, I was invited to Malaysia, Indonesia, and Brunei to share. So this to show that as Martin Muslims, relating to our own local context, we're able to excel as a community. My third point, also released then to the fatwa. And Alhamdulillah, just now we had actually Mufti was here earlier on with, the, uh, with Sheikh Hisham. For some of us, you recall two weeks ago, during our Friday sermon, we had the, the Qutbah, which touched on the fatwa. The fatwa explains well that it may differ according to context and time. Still relating to the text of the Quran and Hadith, but how do you relate that into Singapore? And that's why it's important for Singapore Muslims to understand that notwithstanding we are a minority, we have Mu'is, we have office of Mufti, we have a good Mufti that would respect the text and relate it to our Singapore's context, given that we are a minority Muslim within a secular state, even sometimes when I share a secular state with a soul, because you're able to practice a religion with freedom, but do not condemn on any other religion, because that's where the law will come after you. So even again on that fatwa, uh, just to share that, remember the last Idufitri? There was a bit of commotion because Malaysia, Indonesia, Brunei celebrated one day earlier because they said you saw the moon. But our Mufti says, no, we didn't see the moon. And there was some commotion because Singapore Muslims say, hey, we should respect the majority Muslim countries, Malaysia, Indonesia, Brunei, they're Muslim countries. We are minority. So why are we not following them? And then I myself had to respond and then there was an Al Jazeera article which shows from a strong perspective, the moon was never sighted. And that's why you remember South Asia, our part of the world, they don't see the moon. I mean, we respect the decision by our neighboring countries, but our Mufti was right. And that's why what's important as minority Muslims, we have to have trust and we need to support the Mufti as Singaporean Muslims within our context of Singapore. I'll leave it at this and then we can open for discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much. I found that quite interesting. I mean, for me, I would say there's a few takeaways. One is that 
um, as a minority, clearly navigating is, is not that easy. And, you know, as Dr. Susanna has pointed out, it's never linear, you know, uh, and uh, it can go in any direction, you know, and I think this is a reality that any minority would face in with any religion, any faith, right? Um, I'd like to open up the floor now to uh, our, our audience to see if there are questions that you would like to ask of any of the speakers, or perhaps you have thoughts that you'd like to challenge uh, some of the thinking that has come up. Uh, I think Sharon's just coming now with, to take the microphone off me. So <laughs> just put your hand up. So thank you very much for uh, for your interventions and, and your points. I found them very interesting. There was one thing in particular, Dr. Samuel, that you mentioned, which was about this uh, issue of quote-unquote indigenization in Indonesia and uh, uh, Arabization, right? Which, and I'm glad that you said it's not always linear because, of course, the the roots of how Islam entered that part of the world were by Arabs, right? And they were Hadrams. Um, and uh, it's it's interesting to see that you know the the most traditional um, of the religious establishment in Indonesia, they're of course Nahdlatul Ulama, right? Um, which highly and deeply, deeply respects their Arab origins in terms of that history, but they're very much about, you know, the, the local context um, and local tradition and so on and so forth. I found that very interesting because it shows, again, it's not linear, right? You know, so they're not disrespecting um, and uh, their, their origins. And, and it brought to mind something once that, you know, it, some of the stuff can get very ugly. You know, so I remember being in, in Kuala Lumpur, um, you know, some years ago for a conference, and uh, one of my former institutions had brought over a delegation of people to actually, you know, study and engage with uh, with Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore. It was a Southeast Asian sort of thing, and I remember somebody was giving us all a briefing, and they incorrectly assumed that we were all purely Westerners. Mm -hmm. Of course, I am a Westerner, but I'm also an Arab. Um, and it was a very, uh, a very bizarre sort of moment where the, the local brief was trying very hard to convince us that we, that they, as, you know, Nusantara Muslims, were good Muslims, like those bad Muslims in the Arab world. And they sort of forgot that I was in the world. Um, half English, and but it was an interesting, uh, an interesting phenomenon, right? Of this idea of trying to present to external actors that you know we're not we're not like those Arabs over there, you know, like pluralistic types, right? Um, and that of course brings up other questions about you know authenticity, but then also these. These uh, these problematic sort of discourses, right? Within within uh, within different regions, um, it was something interesting that I noted, and especially at the same time as you mentioned that you know these these communities are they didn't just come out of nowhere, right? Everybody comes from somewhere at some point or another. There's a lot of interchange, and so on. You know, somebody was mentioning to me the other day that you'll find a lot of cultural influences in the south of Yemen that are actually from Southeast Asia. Because people went and then they came back and they brought stuff with them. So there can be that 
that sort of thing going on. I thought I'd just, you know, mention that for people. But indeed, we do have any questions, including from online chat, if there are any, uh, please, you know, I'm, we're all here, we will have this discussion. Story because, um, uh, so, so this is a comment, and then I'll get to the question. So, my experience in Indonesia has also been, been quite interesting. Obviously, you know, when I started studying Indonesia, I was studying at the time and uh, very immersed, uh, in the movement and, and looking at this whole how it gets indigenized and, and how it's not again a linear process and how uh, it's a constant evolution. So that's another tool. But in, in more recent times, uh, I've traveled outside of Java to areas which are not NU dominated, uh, but to which they are, but to which they are, they identify themselves indigenous sort of Muslim communities. Um, they don't necessarily ascribe to Nalitu or uh, There are, in parts of Indonesia, uh, established Arab communities uh, who are very proud of their, of their uh, and, and their understanding of Islam. And uh, I, it's just very interesting in terms of how they identify me as I move, right? Because I'm uh, uh, so so it's it's always interesting when they all ask the question whether uh, okay, so you're you're Singaporean, uh, you know, you're Arab, right? You have to move your mind because your voice is not. Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah. So so uh, and then how? So there's a there's a external perception uh, in which you are identified and and how that then puts a certain status, right? So uh, it's good versus bad or above versus not. And, and, that, and, and it's quite interesting in how complex a dynamic that is because Indonesia is so large. And it's, it's really about, uh, there are these communities outside of Java itself uh, in how they identify themselves and how they practice and how they see themselves as indigenized, right? And then my question really is that, talked about in uh, you know the, it's non-linear there's in this there's this evolution in how the ideas uh, spread and uh, you describe right uh, as you do in the book uh, about how these ideas are being taught and learned and spread right so we've got uh, I have not read the book but you know what I'm hearing is that you've got uh, these communities to, to South Africa. My question is really about whether we are seeing now uh, with social media and the internet uh, a form and a way in which ideas are spreading to which there is no filter. And, and, there's, and, and there's a learning process which is not lost uh, and to which then indigenization is producing as I don't know a certain entity or or almost uh, something we are looking at that's quite distinct and different from how ideas and practices spread in the way you described earlier right so that's my question whether with with internet and and with technological advancements we are looking at something different yeah, that's an excellent question and one that in various ways has actually come up multiple times on my trip to Singapore and also to Malaysia. I've been on the road now, literally for three weeks, um, and uh, uh, I'm looking forward to a holiday. 
um, as, as enjoyable as this has been. Um, before I answer your question, um, I did have a question, um, which was you mentioned these communities that they self-identify as indigenous Muslim communities in Indonesia. But as you, as you rightly know, uh, it's a majority Muslim society. So when they say indigenous, and I think you intimated they're not, they're not part of, uh, they're not under, let's say, the rubric of Nahdlatul Ulama. So what, what do they mean when they say they're indigenous communities? Um, so a lot of it is, uh, oh, sorry. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, I haven't, I haven't explored it. Uh, it's just my interactions with them. It seems that um, they, are, they, they are operating outside of Java. So, so these are smaller groups of populations in the islands, which, you know, they're the smaller islands in Indonesia that, that maybe uh, would, in which Islam would have arrived in the same way yeah. that it would have arrived in Aceh. Yeah. Or, but, you know, our focus has been so much on Java. Uh, and how Islam spread throughout Java that we often, well, certainly I uh, forget these communities, right? So they identify themselves as separate from Java. So a lot of it is territorial, okay. uh, almost regional, right? Um, is this um, there are no questions okay. which appear to be quite specific to the ethnic community. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. So in response to your question, I was I was curious because obviously Indonesia is, I mean, how many hundreds of islands uh, and subcultures as well? So that's all very interesting to keep in mind. Um, and of course, traditionally, as you look at how uh, these communities have developed in places like China or in South Africa or whatever, that they take on you know local cultural um, affinities and particularities that are, are quite fascinating. They're very often shown. And I remember this in South Africa, they're quite often shown in art and song, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, the celebrations that take place uh, during the month of the birth of the Prophet. Uh, and you see that very clearly. Now, in response to your question, I think that's a really interesting observation because social media has really turned a lot of things on its head. And I think we, we don't actually we don't actually recognize how significant and substantial this is, not simply for the discussion that you you were talking about, but just generally in terms of, uh, frankly, life. You know, um, I, uh, uh, I I really I really deeply believe that the 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 speed at which ideas can be thrown across borders, um, again without filter, but then also the effect that this has on new generations. Um, the effect that it has on young people, um, you know, you'd never see, um, you know, these quote unquote inf online influencers, huh? They would be out of a job, you know, and quite rightly so, frankly, um, because the 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 very nature of social media isn't that it gets more likes or shares or retweets or whatever, because the information is actually good or authentic or well-informed or, or or it's about being say some sensationalistic that's all it is whether you like it or you don't like it and if you don't like it you still share it as you attack it you're still sharing so it's still without right um, whereas of course this wouldn't have been possible before and i think that has a, a tremendous impact um because in that learning experience so if i think about you know, those three generations, and now there's the fourth of going back and forth from, quote unquote, you know, the margins, okay, to the, the center. Huh? Um, there's a long and arduous process 
that gets involved, isn't there? You know, it's it's a long trip, but then also when they're there, they're engaging with people, uh, their living experiences, and they won't be able to get the knowledge or the information that they're looking for, except that they go through those experiences. And that, you know, inculcates certain types of uh, pedigrees, certain types of training, and so on. And again, you know, the tradition that I mentioned with regards to Cape Town, it's a tradition of learning. It is a tradition of scholarship, but it's also, we're also talking about spiritual traditions. And you can't do that on the internet, as much as people might think otherwise. But the, uh, the, the limitations, but also the speed that gets involved when you talk about this. I mean, I talk about this in other arenas uh, with regards to radicalization and extremism. Um, and the mainstreaming of the far right, you know, all of this is is indelibly, you know, connected to the the spread of social media in this sort of way. You couldn't imagine, you know, a Donald Trump presidency pre-social media. It just is not possible. Okay, um, or Brexit, or all sorts of things like that. You know, it's very much connected to it. And I don't think we take a, take that really into account how much that has really changed the political discourse. Okay, I've got two questions here that have come from our Zoom audience. Yes, sir, but I'm apparently now the conveyor of these messages to you. The questions, and then you can answer them one after the other. Okay, so the first question has come from Anita M. And she has asked this question, how do you see minority groups operating going forward in countries which are showing a backslide in democratic values? I thought that's quite interesting. The second question has come from Fadil, and I'm wondering if this is the Fadil who used to work with us at MEI, <laughs> but it's a good question as well. It is a question for you, uh, Hisham. To what extent should this discussion surrounding indigenization include considerations of the interaction between Islamic law and culture stroke custom? Good questions. Um, and they're quite, I mean, they're sort of they cut across a lot of borders. So um, when we're talking, I mean, I'm, if I'm correct, the first question is talking about minorities where you have the far right. Yes. Okay, yeah. So um, uh, I, you know, I've been talking about this for the last few weeks on this trip because I've been talking about minority groups in places like Malaysia and, and Singapore, as I've been doing talks on this. Um, after my own my own research, and uh, I I come out this from a particular perspective, just personally, you know. And what I mean by that is that in some places I'm a minority, in other places I'm a majority, and in some places I'm both at the same time. Um, so I'm half English, um, so that puts me into quote unquote the majority camp when it comes to the UK. But I'm also mixed race, so that's different. When I'm in uh, the Arab world, uh, because of my sensitivities or my empathy towards, you know, minority experiences, um, I take that pretty seriously. When I see minority groups um, within the Arab world and the wider Middle East, and what's happened um, in different cases there too, um, so uh, I, I find the current trend of the far right to be very concerning and I find it very concerning for for two reasons and I think we touched on this Michelle last week if I if I'm not mistaken I, my last three weeks are a bit of a blur but I think this did come up where um, the mainstreaming of the far right means that discourses that were exclusively part uh, and parcel of the 
the propaganda or the political programs of far-right movements are now no longer just about those political parties. Um, in fact, those political parties might be marginal and remain marginal, but their discourses have become mainstream, so it doesn't actually matter. Um, and in some so that's one aspect or that's one scenario that takes place where the parties remain marginal, but their concerns and their quote unquote solutions become the same as the, the center, uh, which is very concerning because of the sort of things that they say. And in other places, um, it's not even just that. It's also the mainstreaming of those parties. And, you know, you see that um, you see that across Europe. Um, and you see that uh, even within the Middle East, I mean, uh, we've, this has come up a couple of times on this trip as well, where, you know, the, the far right in Israel has become mainstream um, and is now in, and not just simply in terms of discourse, but actually the political parties themselves have moved into the center, you know, they're a government. Um, but when, when we think about the far right uh, in the West, which I think is what your, your questioner was getting at, um, you know, the, the Republican Party in the United States has shifted to the, the far right quite a lot. You know, MAGA is nothing if not a far right movement. Okay. Um, you see that in, in other parts of Europe, um, unfortunately, countries that have good history, have actually very strong histories about pushing back against certain types of things. And I'm, I'm hopeful that they will do so again. Um, but it's very unfortunate that in the meantime, there's all this discourse around uh, refugees and migrants, and uh, and a lot of it is focused on Muslims, um, because there's this uh, there's this very interesting you know historical development of you know actually this is this covers everything. If we go after Muslims, then it covers everything. It covers migrants. It covers people of color. It covers uh, a religion we don't like, it covers everything and it becomes a real rallying cry um, in order to, uh, again, get get votes. You know, some, somebody somebody asked me once about, and don't you think terrorism is the reason for anti-Muslim bigotry or Islamophobia? I said, well, look at the data. The data shows that actually when terrorist attacks take place, that's not when Islamophobia jumps up. Islamophobia jumps up around election time. Islamophobia jumps up around election time so it's it's very much a, it is very much a vote getter uh, in many of these places it very much is a, a vote getter um and uh, i'm not really sure what people uh, are doing in regards to that i remember in uh, in the late 90s early 2000s austria elected a coalition government there was a particularly odious gentleman uh, who was from the freedom party he became chancellor as part of the deal uh, Etc. And the European Union responded by essentially sanctioning Austria. Okay, it was very serious. Fast forward to 2023, and um, you know, Viktor Orban is finally <laughs> much worse. But there you go. You know, and that's the way that it is. Okay, so and you see a lot of center-right parties in. Uh, in the European Union that are espousing a lot of discourse that's really quite odious, uh, but is no longer on the margins. And we cannot claim it's on the margins and it would be silly to do so because it would underestimate the intensity of that conversation. Um, and I think that's also true um, in large parts of uh, the Republican Party in the United States as well. And you've seen that in other places, uh, of course, but I think your question was talking more about the far right in, in the West. 
Now, with regards to your second question about Islamic law and culture, um, you know, historically speaking, I think it's it's just very much the reality that you see these communities uh, arise in different cultural contexts, and they just take on, you know, different cultural colors. Um, uh, the place, you know, I I was in Malaysia, you know, last week or so, and um, I was given a tour of uh, quote unquote a Chinese mosque. Okay, I say quote unquote because it's very new, but there are really old Chinese mosques, obviously in China, that are you know more than a thousand years old, and they look completely different. And uh, you see that, of course, in Singapore and Malaysia, that these are really part and parcel of local architecture and art and so on. And then you have these these Arabization attempts, which are very funny because they don't work. And they literally don't work. So, you know, as you all know, there's a lot of rain in Sparta. And it's a lot of rain. Anyway. Um, and, you know, uh, what are you going to do uh, with houses in climates that have a lot of rain? You're going to make sure are like that, aren't you? You're going to make sure that the rain gets filtered, aren't you? Um, so what happens to, you know, this this poor guy who decides, well, I've been to the Arab world, and that's where Islam is really from, isn't it? And uh, in Saudi, uh, their mosques are built like this. So he comes back and he builds a mosque like that. And of course, the roof falls in because it collects all the rain, right? So it literally doesn't work. Um, but these things are new, you know, so, I mean, the questioner, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm getting from the question that this is, quote, unquote, a new challenge. And I don't think it is. I think that you you have a lot of evidence to show that, you know, these communities are all really different from each other. You know, Nigerian Muslims don't look like Malaysian Muslims um, in terms of their dress. They, they will in terms of their practice. So, you know, religion doesn't change. Um, or rather, you know, the ritual practices, they don't necessarily get impacted by that, but there are lots of other things that do and always have. And um, I, th I th think that that's something very interesting about those communities. Um, and I remember seeing, uh, uh, oh no, I didn't see it. I, I was with um, a professor from the American University in Cairo. He was English and he was talking about how he went on the Hajj. And uh, he said, you know, I went and I did my Hajj and I thought I'm going to, after the Hajj is done, because after the Hajj is done, everybody then changes out of their Hajj garb, right, which is pure white, um, and they just go around in their own sort of national dresses, don't they, for Eid and so on, oh, well, you know, for different things thereafter. And uh, he, he got a thove, he got an Arab sort of uh, white shirt, and he went down and he just saw all of this. This color, he just saw all this, this, you know, this wave of different types of dresses. So, so he went back upstairs and put on a tweed suit. Because he's like, well, if they do, then why not I? You know, and uh, I think that's just very organically what takes place in these communities, at least from, from what I've seen. Did you see? Does anybody? Uh, just a couple of questions. The first would be um, My name is uh, Farouk uh, from Wales. Um, my first question would be What are the key ingredients for the process of indigenization to sort of operate sustainably? 
uh, in which, for example, in short term, it is responding to a particular phenomenon, like such as urbanization. Um, but in the long run, it's not just responding or merely responding, but it is transforming and producing new bodies of knowledge. That's my first question. My second question would be, um, in our efforts to indigenize, um, what are some of the discursive constraints in terms of uh, where, in which we uh, sort of avoid falling into nativism, right? Where uh, we sort of cut ourselves from the civilizational aspects of Islam. Um, so that's my question. That's really great um, to hear those sorts of questions. First, I'd say, because I know you're talking about your own experience, right, as a Singaporean. Um, I don't think you guys need to indigenize. I think you are indigenous. Um, and uh, and I recognize as such. Sorry, mistake. So I don't think that's really too much of an issue for you here. Um, uh, but I, I like very much that you asked about this whole, you know, it's not just a reactive thing in certain places. It's, it's a proactive one. And, you know, there's something called cultural capital, right? And cultural capital, I think... Is something that communities, particularly those who are demographically minorities, become majorities. And I don't mean majorities in terms of becoming demographically as such, but are no longer thinking in minority mindsets, if that's a phrase that I can use. Um, rather, uh, they, they feel as though and are recognized as such uh, by the majority as being part of the majority. Like, I never got the impression when I was in South Africa particularly in Cape Town, at least, that they were a minority. Now, of course, demographically, of course, they're minorities. It would be ridiculous. But they never expressed themselves um, as having, quote-unquote, minority concerns. So uh, they were always talking about, you know, wider concerns. Now, of course, they also talked about their own particular needs um, that, are, uh, that are about them as a minority group. Um, but they were uh, they were also talking about majority ones um, in the sense that you know the the mainstream has these concerns about you know good governance uh, accountability justice um, all of that sort of thing and you know again like the um, the South African community was also involved in the anti-apartheid struggle okay as a minority group you know maybe they didn't need to do that okay but. They felt very strong, at least those who were active, of course, felt very strongly about that. Um, so it's that sort of thing that I think is just just very important. Um, when it comes to discourse and you know the restraints or the limitations, you know if uh, again I don't know if this applies to you, but uh, and I would I would presume it does in most ways. But when I think about other minority communities that don't have a very long history in those particular places and here i'm thinking mostly about western europe and north america okay uh, they're much newer they're not new but they're much newer okay so you have muslim communities in central northern and south uh southeastern europe that go back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years okay so that's that's separate okay when you talk about western europe not really Okay, Western Europe, the quote-unquote Muslim presence is relatively new, um, you know, 50, 60, 70 years old, but in terms of significant numbers. So they're building culture, you know. Um, now, uh, it's a mix, okay, because obviously they, they originate from migrations, 
and the migrations are from different places, and there's a smattering of converts as well, smattering in the sense of, you know, just proportionate, right? And uh, they're not going anywhere, and they, they're not thinking about, quote-unquote, return. return. There's nowhere to return to. They were born and raised in these, in these countries. Um, and I've seen, you know, these, uh, these discourses develop over the past 20 years through my research, um, where people start talking about, again, cultural capital and cultural production. Um, the most successful of them that remain, because you're talking about a sustainable effort, something that um, can continue and stay alive. The most sustainable ones have been those uh, projects that um, don't try to uh, deny their connection to um, the sort of broader tradition of the the religious faith, um, but try to do something fresh rooted within it. Okay, so one example um, is a colleague um, and, uh, and friend and teacher, uh, TJ Winter at the University of Cambridge. He comes up with, you know, these, these hymns, okay? They're actually hymns, but they're odes to the prophet. And they sound like church hymns, they really do, you know? And on purpose. Okay, and of course they're in English, but they're also trying to um, to draw on that heritage, which is very much English or Scottish or Welsh, um, because they because they thought you know this is what this is what people need. They need to create you know new cultural modes that will work. Now I have to say, the last time you know I brought this up, um, actually we did a just like this at Cambridge. Um, a few months ago, and one of the things that he uh, he admitted was that you know he he did this sort of work for a long time, and it's not that he stopped, but that he started to feel that actually, you know, a, a, maybe even a wider challenge is that culture itself is being pulverized. Okay, um, and what he meant by that is that uh, partly to social media. There is a hegemonization of culture, a globalized culture, which tries to flatten everything. And it's a, it, it would be enough work just to hold on to like the old stuff, okay? Because it's just all getting sort of pushed out, um, which I found very interesting to see. He did a lot of work on stuff like that. Um, and uh, 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 I, I find it interesting that he was focusing on that so much. I don't know if that addresses all of yes. what you're trying. Okay, good, thank you. Any other questions? Yeah, oh. <laughs> My name is Akif Shuja. I'm from Middle East Institute. Uh, uh, I just heard what uh, Fazlul has said more than establishing an Islamic state, you know, it's important to think about the state of Islam in our mind. Uh, I think that's worth considering by the scholars, the state of Islam in our mind. Uh, uh, but leading to that, I have a question for Dr. Hellier. Uh, see, uh, Islam is actually a, a thing for us to be practiced, you know, uh, throughout our life every second. But there's always a conflict between the proper understanding of Islam, what is right, what is wrong. And I think that conflict actually creates a space for these powers, whether it is Imam or Faqih or Islamic leader or head of the Islamic state 
So how do we reconcile as Muslims uh, this dichotomy, this conflict, not knowing what is Islamic, but still we have to practice it each and every second. That's a question for you. Thank you. That's a big question. <laughs> you know, um, so as you know, I'm sure, and uh, uh, this is just me as the academic speaking here. Um, there is no such thing as a hierarchical, uh, ecclesiastical, papist authority in Islam, right? So there's no, there's nothing equivalent to the Vatican and the Pope, right? That doesn't mean that there's nothing called religious authority in Islam. Um, and historically, that's just very much the case. There's always been religious authority in Islam, um, but people look for church-like structures, and it doesn't exist, at least for the vast majority of Muslims. You could argue, maybe you could argue, and I wouldn't, but you, I suppose there's an argument here that Shia Islam would be different in this regard, but I don't really buy that. Um, I think that what you have um, is something far more akin to scholastic, academic, peer-reviewed style authority, right? And what I mean by that is that you have circles of um, scholarly groupings um, that are not inaccessible, okay, historically speaking, that are not inaccessible, they're not passed down through caste systems or something, they're passed through learning and being recognized as scholars in the same way that an academic peer review, they do the same, at least theoretically speaking. Um, and uh, I think that's how traditionally uh, you see um, the transmission or the continuation of these religious traditions take place. So, you know, for example, we're in, we're in Southeast Asia, the, uh, the school of law that predominates here is the Shafi'i school of law. It's a Sunni rite of jurisprudence um, that traces itself back uh, for more than 1400 years. Okay. And at every generation sort of adds and filters or, you know, engages with the current, etc. Right. So there's a, there's a continuation and there's a transmission that at least is playing um, and is accepted, you know, uh, which is why you have all of these people in this part of the world, uh, you've got hundreds of millions of people who will practice according to that right. Yeah. Um, same thing when it comes to other rights in other parts of the world. So there's this transmission that takes place on the basis of the recognition of religious authority, but not a papal or not, a, as I said, a hierarchical ecclesiastical authority structure. It's far more akin to sort of peer In my opinion, that's the best way to look at it. Some other religious traditionalists do do the same. Um, the Jewish community, at least traditionally, has that historically. That's you know the community of the rabbis and so on. Um, but it's, uh, it's 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 well known, at least in academia, that this is how religious authority has been transmitted for those communities. Again, going back 14 centuries, um, and I think people still find those credible. Um, doesn't mean there are problems. There are of course problems. Um, but the you know somebody. Uh, and not somebody, this pro this issue around radicalization, extremism, and Islamic State, and Al-Qaeda, and so on. I remember people talking about this in the early 2000s, not with regards to uh, Islamic State, but to other extremist groups. And, um, you know, I think we've forgotten that this discussion was had. They reviewed it as a crisis of religious authority. 
where people didn't uh, view religious authority in quite the same way. So it was really up for grabs by anybody and everybody. Um, and I think that's where, you know, a lot of these issues really find their roots, in my opinion. I'm going to, I, I want to actually see if either Dr. Susanna or yes. Fazla has actually got some comments, uh, questions, or, you know, they disagree with each other, you know, that would like to give a view. So I just, I don't know what it is. Mission, you have a comment, uh, just a reaction, and then uh, a question. Actually, on so the question is on, on your answer to the final uh, question uh, about the religious authority, right? I think you described theoretically what, what it is, but I wonder whether the emergence of of a hierarchical that that we see in parts of Southeast Asia because we know how Islam is understood and practiced uh say in parts of Asia. Um, how it's understood and recognized by the locals and uh, and the imam then uh, defines um, how the architect is. Uh, they don't necessarily question it because their understanding is that the imams uh, will and, and we'll see that uh, in these communities. So I, I'm wondering whether that the emergence of that is in fact a reflection of the indigenization that that we're talking about, right? Because you're absolutely right that there is no such structure uh, and that we, we may be talking about religious authority, but there's no uh, sort of definitive this you must follow, that in fact we can think through, reflect, and in fact make changes. That, that's the reality. But how it's actually understood in the, in the everyday lives of, of people is quite different. That's my question. question can I just add on to what... Yes, sure. uh, I think recently, I think we've been hearing or been a lot been shared on social media. Saudi Arabia is greening. I mean, it's greening again. <laughs> it's getting green again. Green. green. Right? Signs of the end. Oh. There is an article, the inner core of the earth has gone, gone counterclockwise. <laughs> where the hadith says, at the end of the world, the sun will rise in the west. And then there's now increasing thing to say that, you know, Imam Mahdi, we are waiting for Imam Mahdi, so we have to be unified again under the black flag. Mm. So there's a reason now on social media, this kind of calling, that notwithstanding what we've been saying, that we have the local authorities, even in <coughs> Singapore, we have a mufti, a very good mufti, in fact, but now there's been called that we have to be united under that one leadership that is coming, the Khalifa. Mm. So how do we then address this kind of narrative Thank you. Um, so uh, I'll be honest, I don't take social media that seriously. Um, yeah, uh, because I think it's designed to amplify the most sensationalistic nonsense that's out there, right? So as I said, there's, there's going to be people that take things that are really stupid. Um, and 
we will know that they're very stupid, but because we don't like it, we will attack it. And by attacking it and by sort of quoting it or carrying it or so on, we inadvertently amplify it. And uh, so I don't, I don't generally sort of uh, take that for, for granted. I think a lot of people just say silly things in their head and sometimes they get onto a computer screen. Um, now, I tell you this as somebody who takes radicalization extremely seriously um, and has done for about 20 years. Um, and uh, post-2005, as you know, was involved in, uh, in, in tackling that problem post-London uh, bombings. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm not one to dismiss, uh, to dismiss that there's an issue, but I... You know, honestly, uh, people people say just dumb things on social media. They really do. And I don't think that they really count for very much. Um, not those sorts of things anyway. I think people are just, um, uh, they're sort of grabbing at, um, uh, at, you know, anything that they can say to get people worked up, you know? So I'm, I'm, I don't really know how much worth there is at spending too much time on engaging with it to be quite frank um when it comes to you know the the reflection as you said of indigenization i i find you know i find that interesting because the so going back to COVID, okay and we're still in the pandemic i know but going back to COVID, and i was having a discussion actually with the mufti about this before everybody came um i was comparing uh communities in places like uh, South Africa, um, one community that I knew really well, and communities in South Asia, not Southeast Asia, but South Asia, and responses to the calls of, you know, closing places of worship, including the mosques, and uh, stuff like that. And, you know, uh, one community that I knew in South Africa, they, they didn't put up a struggle about it at all. The, the imam or the sheikh of the community said, Time to close because otherwise people will die. Okay, and they said, "Thank you very much. We're done. We closed the mosque, and that was that." And then you had uh, another reaction in some parts of South Asia, where the the imam or the the scholar, or whatever, um, is interpreting the call to close the mosques from the state as an assault on their authority. Mm -hmm. So actually, they're not thinking about the health implications as much as they're thinking about their own. Uh, their own authority. So that's a very different sort of thing that goes on. Um, and, you know, when I discussed, you know, how religious authority traditionally, at least as we understand historically in academia, um, in, uh, in the Islamic world, it's really been about scholarship, right? So anybody who wants to become one of the ulama, you know, you want to go spend that time, and, uh, and there's a lot of time, uh, in order to, um, quote unquote, gain access to the syndicate, um, uh, be my guest. You know? I mean, it's not sort of blocked off for them. And if it is, and if it's something that they don't do, then as much as they might, you know, not necessarily take everybody seriously, but they'll, they will defer, which I think is kind of natural, to be honest. I mean, um, if I have a toothache, I'm going to take the opinion of my dentist over my plumber or my, uh, my architect. Right. You know, I mean, I think that a lot of that is natural. Um, I think what's not necessarily as healthy, of course, is when 
people start to uh, try to impose a type of authority where you know there's no engagement and no talk and no no discussions and so on. Um, but I think that's a separate issue. I think that's more about um, people trying to impose not just understandings, but you know their their own again authority uh, in in ways and and means that they don't actually have access to really. Okay. Um. <laughs> yes. Oh, so thank you all for uh, a great discussion. Uh, Aisha Ansari here, a research fellow at the Middle East Institute. Um, it's not really my expertise, uh, the Islam and the political Islam, um, but I am from Oman and uh, yes, my religion is Islam. Um, so my question is, uh, listening to all of you, does Singapore represent a role model for the indigenization of the Muslim minorities? If, if so, like why? And if not, why? Thank you. When people come to my part of the world and try to pontificate when they've only been around for a few days, I'm not, I can't do that to all of you. Uh, and uh, I really like Singapore, and uh, sure you have problems as well as other places. Um, I'm not going to say more than that. And besides, there are people who are generally experts on this country that really should talk. So, Dr. Tuzena, please. Um, okay. I mean, we were just talking about authority and authenticity of knowledge, and you want me to talk about a country I've spent five days in. <laughs> um, so, I don't know if I know to answer that question. Um, um, I. I don't know whether we should go out there and declare ourselves as like um, we are the we are the model uh, because um, firstly I think that's um, I don't know I don't know what what that you know what what's that model right uh, I, I do think we are constantly learning uh, to. Uh, to I don't know operate as as uh, Muslims uh, within the Singapore context. Um, I think it's a uh, every community has a different context within which we all have to operate in. Um, whether we have emerged with sort of an indigenized version, um, that one I, I I don't know. I, I suppose we can ask you know people from from uh, Muiz and and all that right about what that means. I I I actually wanted to respond to a point that you uh, brought up, but which really struck me. And, and maybe that partially answers how, if there's a model, I mean, how I see myself, right? Because I'm a Singaporean Muslim. You talked about, I mean, you talked about this thing of cultural capital uh, and, uh, you know, no longer thinking of yourself as a minority or having minority concerns. And, uh, and as you said that, I was just thinking, mm -hmm. Uh, I was just reflecting on, on my position, right? Um, I, I don't see myself as um, a minority. Um, I see myself as Singaporean. I have uh, very real concerns about the future of, of Singapore. Uh, and I think the concerns that I have 
uh, transcends my uh, religious or ethnic identity. It's actually very national. Uh, so I don't know whether that's what you're referring to, but I think it does reflect a, a space that I, uh, I'm at uh, in terms of my level of comfort of my own identity, right, as uh, as an ethnic and religious minority, because it, it doesn't supersede uh, how I'm thinking about the future. Uh, there are real uh, concerns I have about the future of Singapore, about the future of the region, about about, about things that are occurring at the, glo at the global level. And I think that's a reflection of that very comfortable space uh, many of us find ourselves uh, actually in Singapore, that sometimes I think we do take for granted. Uh, yeah, that, it's, it's fascinating you put it like that because as you were talking, I was thinking about other demographic minority communities that I've studied um, that are not Muslim, actually. So Egyptian Copts, if you ever told them that they weren't Egyptian in some way, they'd be very, very unhappy. Mm -hmm. you know, they're, uh, in fact, they consider themselves sometimes to be uh, ultra-Egyptian, you know, ultras. Huh? Um, and uh, Jordanian Christians, okay? They are as Jordanian as everybody else. Now, of course, they have minority concerns in the sense that, oh, well, we need uh, these types of uh, procedures in order to construct uh, churches or whatever, right? Which are, are very natural for people to inquire about. Um, so they're not sort of um, fading away into the mainstream. They're actually very proud of their... Uh, distinctive identities, um, but they don't they don't think of themselves as minorities, and actually they get very annoyed <laughs> at being described as minorities. Um, and I remember this very clearly, you know, over the past few years, where you'd have evangelical groups in places like the United States and the United Kingdom, and you know they'd want to talk about these communities as minority communities that they must sort of go and save, okay? And they get very cross and say, actually, when you do that, you're denigrating our status, okay? Um, we're not minorities, even though, I mean, Jordan has quotas, okay? Um, in uh, in Egypt, you have separate uh, systems. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of stuff that is actually very distinctive, but they, uh, they don't perceive themselves to be minorities, even though, of course, they know demographically that's what they are. But politically or economically or whatever, that they're not they're not looking to be like that. Um, and they get very cross, actually, when people describe them as otherwise, even though they might be worried about sectarianism and things like that. Um, so that's that's interesting. But uh, I don't know if this is your question at all, but, you know, I, I suppose it just bears a testimony to, to how these communities uh, develop over time. Um, and I'm sure there are lessons to learn from, from many places. Yeah. Maybe if I can just add, uh, well, the minority, I mean, the Singaporean Muslim community, we are actually also finding ourselves. Uh, in fact, in Moist, we have this, you know, Singapore Muslim identity. Uh, we are trying to create a minority Muslim community of, of excellence, of success. Uh, in fact, I think MUIS has a program, right? Uh, prog a research program on Muslim community of success. Uh, maybe I can get people from MUIS to explain, to share further. Uh, even our own minister, Mastagos, have shared that the, the three Cs, you know, uh, character, competency, and citizenry. 
So in the sense that uh, big minority itself in Singapore, uh, we are able to be progressive, uh, do not feel apologetic that we are Muslims in Singapore. We are uh, rich in our tradition, uh, but we will still continue to excel and then contribute as a gracious, caring society. Because what's important is that we are living in a more cosmopolitan. In fact, the, the traditional composition of our Muslims, I mean, we have Malays, Indians, the Hanafis, uh, traditionally, and then of course we have, we have some of the Arabs, but we are finding more because of cross-migration. We have Singaporeans moving overseas, we have foreigners we are, because we are open economy, so we welcome foreigners to Singapore, and then we are finding a more uh, diversified uh, ethnic groups, Muslims. So, and then they bring their own interpretation. But what's important then, once you're in Singapore, if you feel that Singapore is home, and this is where then we need to contextualize living in a secular, uh, inclusive society. I think that's what we are trying to do. So if you want to claim that we can be a model for other countries, definitely no, uh, because we ourselves are trying to find our own footing. And uh, I would say, alhamdulillah, in the sense that I think the, the years of nation building, in fact, for, for some of the Muslims are doing more effort now to reach out, to build bridges, to get involved, in, the, in, in the, the bigger society, we are now creating our own uh, identity uh, to show that we are actually part of this uh, Singaporean inclusive society. So it's still work in progress. Okay. Um, you've got a question? <clears throat> I think we'll take this as the last question sure. and then I will invite our panelists if you've got any last comments. So sorry. Um, my name is Ashraf. I'm studying at the University of Life. <laughs> um, I have two questions. Firstly, is for Dr. Helia, and second is for all the panelists. The first question will be: As you all of us might have known, history has shown us that um, Islam or per se Sufism has spread, um, has integrated seamlessly with um, uh, with minority countries. For example, back then in Java, in Patani, uh, the, with the Wali Songo as well as the Hadramis that we owe our deen to, and also in South Africa, in uh, the um, event of Sheikh Yusuf Makassar. Um, from Dr. Dr. Halia's perspective, what hallmarks of spiritual, spiritual, spirituality that you observe that helps us, that helps them integrate, that helps the religion integrate seamlessly into the community or into the culture itself? And how can we, um, how can we apply that to the current to the to the current context as well as in the future where the values of religion as well as culture itself is diminishing. My second question is to all the panelists, because um as you have mentioned the the platform of social media itself was unfiltered. It is in my generation in the young generations it's like combating both our minds and also as well, and also affecting our hearts because one one way or another whether we like it or not we are still involved in this ball game in this space, we are, we are affected by it directly or indirectly. So how can we immunize ourselves to better understand what is right and filter out what is, um, what is what uh, Dr. Mahalia mentioned, the, the, the ridiculous ones, um, for example. Yeah, so those are my two questions. Thank you very much. Yeah. 
I'll talk about that because you raised a question on, 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 uh, on you know, the technological advancements and uh, what we are seeing with the internet. Um, I don't think we, I, I certainly don't have an answer about how we create that filter. Uh, I, I don't think we have the option of switching off uh, because uh, it's moving uh, fast and all the advancements that are happening are just what we are seeing on, you know, so it's, it's moving uh, literally, you know, day by day, they are, you know, they are, they are advancing. So we're dealing with social media at one level. Uh, at the next level, for example, at my level, we're dealing with AI and uh, what that's going to mean to education. Uh, AI is another thing in the whole, it's another ball game, right? Uh, because uh, that means we're going to have computers able to algorithms, able to process answers uh, and churn that out. Right. Uh, we don't need you know, we don't need the teachers. We don't need the frameworks. And even at the university, we're uh, with that to try and figure out how we can. Ultimately, I still think it's about re. Um, what's the word? Uh, about re-emphasizing the 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 education and the educational framework. It's about being able to think uh, critically, uh, using a methodology. Uh, it may mean that we have to go back to what is the traditional methodology in this scholarship community. Uh, that's actually very central to Islam that many of us don't necessarily understand. Uh, but I think that there is a methodology that we, that, that we, we'll have to go back to because that's where the answer may be, right? So instead of assuming that we get an answer in the future, the answer may be to think through what the frameworks were actually existing previous to that, right? So on education, for example, uh, we are harping on critical thinking now because we know we, we, can't, uh, we can't defeat AI, so to speak. We need to train our young to be able to see uh, all this information and ultimately get there. So I think that's going to apply here in terms of addressing that, that challenge that you mentioned. Uh, just a quick response. I think we can't isolate fully proof of self from what's happening in social media. In fact, uh, in terms of some of those ideologies, you know, we have some of those preachers being banned by the government. But the thing is that, you know, they're still very active on social media. So it's up to us as individuals to be able to understand, to sift through. Uh, in fact, we, we receive a lot of all these videos which I shared actually coming from Indonesia, you know. So again, it's been shared sometimes. My mother was sent to me, is it true? I say, <laughs> I, I got to be the, the checker. But what's important too, I think it's because they're out there, I think the narrative, uh, how do we then as a society, I mean, talking about your own Singaporean society, able to respond. So I think this is where we're asking more of those out there because sometimes those people comment, you know, with that kind of narrative, uh, you know, we call it the Tinko song, the empty vessels. They, they just want to get attention. But I think what's important is that we, I always ask, especially the younger ones, because this is where it's your age, uh, even the younger Asatiza, to go out there. And because this is where you need to fine tune the uh, interpretation and the understanding. So, well, there's this engagement. Uh, and I think what Dr. Susanna mentioned, again, we're talking about chat GPT and the other things. So, as Muslims, 
we go back to our fundamentals about how then we respond to this in the in, in, in the social media world. But I think Dr. Haley will have a better <laughs> explanation. What a question to end on. Uh, so uh, you asked two questions, so I'll address those two questions and then thank you, Clark. Um, uh, I think social media is a cesspit. Uh, I really do. Uh, and it's very ironic because I use it a lot. Um, and I use it a lot for, for research purposes and my work. And uh, I'm very grateful that I began my academic career when it didn't actually exist. Uh, I think my uh, perspectives would have been very, very much different had that not been the case. Um, and I'm glad that I came of age long before this actually was a reality because again, I, I think it's, it's really dangerous, you know, um, and I'm not even talking here about radicalization or extremism, but just the way that it has an effect on people, um, seeing how people engage with each other online um, uh, in ways that they wouldn't have dreamt of engaging with in person, but that, that then has a, a, a knock-on effect. Eventually they'll start behaving like that in, per in person too. And, you know, I say this to people, you always train or you always give advice to your children before you send them to school about how to deal with certain situations. And nobody does that when it comes to social media. You know, uh, we just give our kids uh, screens and we just say, yeah, okay, you know, or we try to limit their time, but we don't actually do more than that. And uh, I think that that's going to have a significant impact on how that generation really uh, looks at the world. So I don't have any easy answers for you uh, when it comes to that. Uh, I think people should really be very aware of it um, because again, I can't imagine, you know, the mainstreaming of the far right without social media. Um, I think it would have been impossible in that sort of way, or at least taken much, 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 much longer, you know, but this is the nature of the modern world, right? You know, technology makes things move, move really, really fast. And in many ways, that's great. Um, as long as you know where you're going, I don't want to be on a train that's going 500 miles per hour if it's headed over a cliff. Okay. Um, in response to your first question, um, which is regards to uh, Sufism and how that impacted, um, you know, the the arrival of Islam in this part of the world, of course, that's true in many other parts of the world as well, um, where you had, you know, these traders um, who were heavily influenced or were you know, purveyors of spiritual traditions. Um, and that's really what, you know, changed people, you know, and you have to speak to spiritual masters about stuff like that, not, not somebody like myself. Um, but I think that it's just very, uh, very clear that, you know, people, people's hearts get touched by hearts. You know, I think that's just the reality of it. Um, with that, from the bottom of my heart, uh, I would like to thank NEI again for this very, uh, very invigorating uh, final event of mine. You know, I, I head off to the airport quite soon, and uh, I've been, you know, really grateful to have had such distinguished people with me on this panel to listen to everything that you've had to say. Uh, I will think about uh, a lot of it. It's given me a lot to to consider and contemplate, um, and to all of you, uh, those of you who are online, as well as you know all of the people that we have here. Um, it's again a pleasure to be back in Singapore. I really do hope to be back again soon. Thank you so much. Michelle. Thank you for joining me.